0: You know, there's certain words that we love in philanthropy, like innovation and, you know, scale and risk. And, you know, there's all these terms that we love, but I actually worry sometimes that folks don't even know what they mean. You know, they've heard them used, but they can't actually apply them themselves. And hack was one of those words, right? It's And I'm all for hacking, work smarter, not harder. I'm all about that. But there's some things that you cannot hack, and trust is one of those things trust, relationship building, those kinds of things,
1: so. In part two, we dive deep into Yvonne's amazing work in the philanthropic sector, representing family foundations like the Klingingsteins, focus on mental health, Abigail Disney's, and Pierre Hauser's Daphne Foundation, as well as the Police Foundation. We discuss the challenges faced since the last election, dealing with depression, how Harry Potter saved her, and the importance of the process of therapy and being comfortable in our own authority. Yvonne explains why you can't hack trust, finding the right match between grantees for social organizations, and why problems are not solved with money but more by public and political will. We discuss wealth and happiness, the role of government in solving problems, and the role of the philanthropic sector and the need for it to get out of its own way and why the agility of the sector is its untapped power and the issues its leadership needs to grapple with. Yvonne reflects on COVID-19 mental health, the stigma, the lack of leadership on the issue. She compares this to her Ebola experience and her anger that we're not taking this seriously. We also cover Yvonne's perspective on serendipity, faith, trust and listening, as well as managing fear. I hope you're inspired by the generous spirit, social conscience and philanthropic heart of Yvonne Moore. So you created... More Philanthropy, your NGO. My firm? Your, so
0: firm actually, your firm. Yeah, More Philanthropy Incorporated is a for-profit firm. So we're working with donors of wealth
1: uh-huh.
0: and helping them give away their money, connect to you know, great change makers around the world. And so you know, I worked for, I've always worked for family foundations. You know, I found my first job was actually while I was in grad school. So I worked for a family called the Klingenstein Third Generation Foundation in New York and then I simultaneously during the summer worked for the New York City Police Foundation because I think one thing that folks don't understand about the New York City Police Foundation is that almost it's actually it's 99% of the budget goes towards salaries alone and so there's actually no or very little money for training even bulletproof vests like there's all these you know rewards all those kinds of things and so the police foundation does that work and so they were looking for someone to, an intern to help with fundraising. So I worked under uh, with some really great people at the Police Foundation. And then I worked with an amazing family on the foundation side and, you know, was trying to figure out my path and ultimately went with foundation, with philanthropy, and actually um, ended up working for Klingenstein Foundation for about four years. I stayed with them a couple of years after graduation. And I really wanted to get a little bit closer to the community. So the Klingenstein Foundation did, they did some fellowships, really some really great work in getting young medical students to think about mental health, which was the overarching mission and goal, thinking about mental health very early in their careers. So they, you know, train really great psychiatrists to think about the mental health needs of mothers, children, ADHD. And so, but it was a lot of fellowship work. And so I actually was kind of missing some of the community-based work that I had been doing when I was with the CASA program. And so left there and went to work with a family, um, Abigail Disney and Pierre Hauser. So went with them to work at their foundation, the Daphne Foundation. So yeah, kind of figured out my path in philanthropy. And then- The
1: people that don't don't know- the name um, Abigail is Walt's uh, niece, is it?
0: So Abby is Roy's granddaughter. So I worked with she and her husband Pierre on their giving, and actually stayed there about fifteen years. And they're actually still clients. In 2015, I actually decided to launch more philanthropy, which focuses on working with families on their giving. So yes, and then we actually have just expanded to include a nonprofit or an exempt organization. So it's so funny that you say that. So. Yes, I'm very excited. So we have a for-profit and a non-profit arm now.
1: I've heard you say that philanthropy is simply the love of humankind. Yep. But in 2019, the well, last year, I, I was doing some consulting with a, an NGO called Epic Foundation and looking at just the allocation of uh, the percentages of money given through philanthropy from individuals, from organizations and foundations. And 2019, witnessed the first percentage drop in giving, which is pretty shocking given it's been an, an upward um, spiral for since the 1950s, albeit it's the remaining, I think, around 2% of GDP in the US. But do you think that that drop is a reflection of the polarization our society is experiencing and a move to increase self-interest rather than, I, I mean, I just loved your perspective or do you think it was just a blip
0: yeah, no. So, so you were looking at individual giving, or both individual and institutional?
1: Institutional went up. It was individual giving
0: that went down a little bit, right?
1: And given that the bulk of individual giving comes from not the super wealthy,
0: exactly.
1: But even the super wealthy are giving a smaller percentage of their wealth than people of average or low income.
0: It's um, it's funny that you you bring this up because actually, I think a few things have happened. I think right after the election. Of the current administration, <laughs> there was a uh, a bit of a reflection moment. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I say that privilege allows you to sit very comfortably in your denial, right? And so I think there was a bit of a shockwave, if you will, after the election. And I think one of the things that folks just didn't know what to do. <laughs> I actually, you know, there's a network of consultants to grant makers and I remember one colleague who was just like dumbfounded. She emailed, you know, the group and she was like, I've got a client who just doesn't want to do anything for the first 100 days of the new administration. And she's like, what am I supposed to do with that, right? So people were actually in moments of panic. I remember actually sending out, so this is 16 as we go into 17. I remember sending an email to most of my clients saying, you know what, you're already doing some amazing work and social justice, racial justice, whatever, you know, you know, there's nothing different you need to do because there were these moments of panic that folks did not know what to do. Then you come to the midterm elections and actually, and I don't know, you know, I don't have the stats to to back this up, but I know that clients were actually thinking more about the midterm elections and who they needed to give to for the midterms than they were about their charitable giving, right? So there's, there's some charitable that's politically um, driven and then there's some C4 or non-charitable, right? Things you can't, you know, get a deduction for.
1: That's interesting, yeah.
0: And so there's, there's not only the, there's individuals like, no, I need to put my money into the, you know, the DCCC or the Democratic Congressional Committee because we got to get, you know, we got to get this Congress changed or I need to put some money into this particular candidate. Or no, I need to, you know, democracy alliance, right? There's, there have been these moments between 16 and 19 where I wouldn't say panic, but there are definitely moments of reflection, some moments of panic and some moments of fear. But it's what I hope it's actually, and then where we are now, but I hope it's, I hope it's allowed folks to be a little bit more reflective about how they give, you know, had one client say, especially when it comes to nonprofits, like, I don't know if folks understand the work that it takes to do the average job of a nonprofit, especially those nonprofits who are working in areas of social justice or equity. And just keeping your organization alive is a struggle. And so I I don't know if folks really realize The advantages of just giving some general operating support to an organization and just letting them do what they do. Mm
1: -hmm. You mean unrestricted giving?
0: Unrestricted core operating general operating support, which covers everything from keeping the lights on to paying someone's salary. And and I'm always amazed how, yeah, so understanding what it takes to actually run an organization on a daily basis, let alone a moment of crisis. Right. So if they were struggling during a regular moment and COVID is a perfect example, how do you think they're operating now? And so, I, you know, I think, you know, I've always I've, I've said this <laughs> for a while that philanthropy is in for a reckoning. Preferably it would come from internal inside or internally so that we can actually Reflect and you know correct ourselves versus the correction coming from outside of the sector, if you will. But
1: let's let's come back to that in a second. Um, sure. I i would heard you talk about using the term you can't hack learning relationships and, <laughs> and trust.
0: Yeah. Oh uh, my gosh! Hack this, hack that, hack this, hack. Oh. I
1: know, and I I really like that. Really uh, resonated. <laughs> but what what gave you the the confidence or the conviction and the drive to invest the time required to build your learning and the relationships and trust of your clients?
0: You know, it's funny because I think, so very personal story. I woke up the second year of graduate school and I always credit Harry, Harry Potter. <laughs> I should actually <laughs> write a note to let her know this, the author, let her know this. But yeah, Harry Potter saved me during grad school. And I say that because I woke up one morning during my second year of grad school and I don't know, I call it my crash and burn. But everything that I had dealt with or experienced or whatever, up until that point, came crashing down on me one morning. And I woke up and I literally, I remember very clearly saying that I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to wake up anymore. I literally got out of bed, went to the phone and called my doctor (laughs) because I was like, okay, now it's time for some professional help. (laughs) And I remember, you know, talking to him about like the depression and what had happened. And I actually started therapy then. But I... You know, I credit actually doing my own reflection work. And I actually, I tell, I tell advisors this now, if you don't do your own reflection work, you can't help anybody else do theirs. You can't help anyone because you have to know if it's your crazy or they're crazy, right? When you are personally working with me, you know, I always tell people, you know, family is crazy on a good day, right? Everybody has a story within their family that's some kind of nutty uncle or aunt or whatever. But when you actually put something heavy into that family, like wealth or mental health or illness, it actually makes things, it it just, it makes things worse and things are, you know, kind of exacerbated. And so if you haven't figured out your own drama, whatever you want to call it, you're not going to actually be any help to that family that you're trying to advise. And so I did my own reflection and therapy work very early and it was a long journey, but it was a really good journey. Because it's very easy for me, I you know I always call it taking off the sunglasses and everything is you know the rosy colored, rosy colored sunglasses. But yeah, so going through that actual process helped me to understand, you know, sit very comfortably in my own power, my own authenticity, being very clear. Right when I work for someone, my own autonomy, where I begin and they end. You know, especially as a woman and a woman of color in this country, being very comfortable in my own authority. Right. So if, you know, example is when I was, you know, working for Abby, I knew that Abby trusted me um, implicitly and I wanted to, and I, that's what I worked toward is that she didn't have to worry about things because I was here, she, nor Pierre. And so, but I was very clear about what my role was and my responsibilities. And so I could sit very comfortably in my authority. And if I wasn't, then I'd find out from her. So that's what I, um, that's kind of how I was able to, to figure out. And it's amazing to me because, you know, you know, there's certain words that we love in philanthropy, like innovation and, you know, scale and risk. And, you know, there's all these terms that we love, but I actually worry sometimes that folks don't even know what they mean. You know, they've heard them used, but they can't actually apply them themselves. And hack was one of those words, right? It's, and I'm all for hacking, work smarter, not harder. I'm all about that, but there's some things that you cannot hack, and trust is one of those things. Trust, relationship building, those kinds of things. So,
1: mm. a core part of your um, your skill is being able to match givers to grantees and ensure that both parties benefit. I mean, obviously, you've taught, you mentioned and alluded there that families can have issues, and you represent a lot of families. But finding the right match can. It, from certainly from my experience, it's a challenge in ensuring that your, the grantee can provide the right support, as you say, if it might be unrestricted funding to an organization to help them just keep the lights on and do the good work that they do. How do you actually manage that, which it must be a very complex process of identifying the right NGOs or social organizations, ensuring you've done your due diligence, and then identifying the, the right families or, or grantees?
0: You know, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say it's complex, but it's definitely thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I think the very first thing, which is, is what is, it doesn't actually even matter if you're working with an individual or if you're working within an institution, is actually being clear on expectations. Like that's the, the first thing is, you know, with the family, is it, what is it that you're actually trying to do, right? What is it you're actually trying to get And I think you have to also be honest with the family or the donor about, you know, first of all, all problems are not solved by money. You know, most, actually most problems are not solved by money because so many problems actually are impacted by public will, right? Public will, political will. So to understand exactly the power of your donation is actually very important, right? So the power of the donation, the amount of the donation, right? The length of the partnership. So it's it's those expectations in the beginning that have to be very clear, and then it actually takes a lot of the complexity out once you get past that point. So it's very clear about what you want to do. Yeah, I had one um, client who, one family that I was working with, they came to the board meeting and they're like, you know what, we want to work on voting rights. And I thought to myself, okay. In my head, I'm like, that's this, right? And so we actually. But I, you know, I explained, I said, you know, that's a huge, I was actually so glad that they said that. I was like, this is very exciting. And so then we, you know, together figured out sections of how we could actually attack voting rights, right? So I came up with a, a very simple plan. It's like, there's the national piece, right? There's the electoral colleges, all things we were talking about before, right? Then there, you know, this is in, in advance of the 2018 elections. And actually it was from um, one of the board members that I learned about this report from the Brennan Center. Just absolute brilliant report. And so we were actually to ta- able to tackle key states, right? That was the second piece of the that I came up with of the, the strategy. And the third piece was actually key constituencies, right? So, you know, there'd been lots of conversation and they remain today about young people voting and engaging and, you know, the power of um, the young people from Parkland, right? So how do we engage those key constituencies to actually activate, right, them in an, any election period, And so actually able to take something that was really very large and actually kind of strategize about how to break it down. So just being clear, I think, about expectations and what they actually want to achieve and what's not likely to happen, what could happen. Yeah, it's just kind of unpacking it for folks.
1: Okay. You've talked a lot about perceptions of humanity uh, being determined by wealth. And you've sat or sit at the intersection having witnessed extreme poverty and extreme wealth what do you have to share or reflect on about wealth and happiness? I know it's a very big and broad um, question.
0: <laughs> I know. I mean, I've, one of the things and I, I, <laughs> I was talking to some, some friends about this a little while ago, it was actually a friend who is, sits on a, um, a board with me, or used to sit on a board with me. Wealth doesn't bring happiness, which, I mean, I'm sure people get that in theory, but it actually doesn't. Wealth doesn't protect you from anything, right? Again, disease is a great equalizer, right? So wealth can't protect you from everything. I think that's the the, the first thing that folks have to understand. And, and I think wealthy people will tell you that. And then actually, one of the things about being poor is that, you know, my grandmother told me, she was like, money has nothing to do with class, right? <laughs> this is my grandmother who Worked as a domestic.
1: I think we can all sort of uh, ref- agree with that. And
0: certain people that thinking were thinking about naming any names. <laughs> I just got that. Money does not give you class. And so I think kind of understanding both sides of the coin, if you will, and then actually figuring out how some folks actually might work together. And that's the thing, too, is I always tell people you never, you never know someone's journey right? You come across somebody who's wealthy or you come across a person of color and you can never make assumptions, right, about their lived experience. So I think, yeah, just understanding both sides, it's, it's actually, I found that that's actually one of the things that's actually helped me, which hopefully to put people at ease when it comes to navigating both of those worlds. I think also yeah, you know, the old adage about people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care is another one. Like, people just don't care. Like, <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've, I've traveled with folks, with wealthy folks on trips, you know, to the continent of Africa. And your knowledge, sometimes you're, you just need to hush and listen. Your, your knowledge actually doesn't mean anything here. It could, but if you don't actually understand the problem... Or the situation, or the promise, or actually the existing successes. This is the other thing, too, is that everything is not a problem, right? We've, especially, you know, I've found this, this is often very true when it comes to the continent of Africa. You know, people approach a particular country as though everything is wrong. Like, no, everything is not wrong. So, yeah, I think, yeah, just learning how to listen and find out what the problem is. And then maybe you're, you're, you know, it may be of help and actually vice versa too. So.
1: Okay. You mentioned earlier about the structural changes required within um, NGOs and, and philanthropy. i have got to weave in two things here. Obviously COVID-19 is mm. having a, a, a huge impact on every facet of society and including philanthropy. But last year, Anand Jared Hardis wrote a book called Winners Take All and his perspective on mm. philanthropy that a lot of these red uh, red carpet giving philanthropists aren't going to be, a, they, they're not saving the world, they're just making it, perpetuating the issues and, uh, and and certainly won't be able to solve it. And you even said that money won't necessarily solve the problems and it is going to come down to governments. So I'd, I'd love your perspective on on that that. And I suppose whether what this might be doing, this is just a big maybe, is a recognition that, and certainly in this country, big government is is deemed to be bad, and that the only way we're going to be able to address these big existential problems that we're facing essentially with this, and potentially this just being one of many upcoming pandemics, if you listen to someone like uh, Jamie uh, Metzl, who used to work at the White House, we're going to be facing more and more existential crisis going forward. So will we see a return of more responsible government taking responsibility for some of the bigger policy-based issues that you said need to be the things that solve these problems? And what will happen to philanthropy? And what role will it be going, going forward?
0: So the role of philanthropy, I mean, this is the thing about philanthropy. Philanthropy drives me nuts, but I stay in it because we have such an amazing promise Right. There's there's such the promise to do good. So philanthropy's role. Philanthropy has to figure that out. Right. I think, you know, one of the things I always say is that we tend to meaning philanthropy, we tend to get in our own way. Right. So philanthropy could actually do whatever it wants, but it has to, one, get out of its own way and then actually. It has to just be, you know, listen to those folks who are actually on the ground navigating these things. I, I think that that would actually help us in so many different ways if we actually understood the problem. I think, you know, a, a colleague of mine actually who worked for a large foundation in Ethiopia. He said that if numbers didn't exist, we would be way more successful.
1: What does that What does that mean if numbers didn't exist?
0: So, meaning that we are so tied to quantitative, to measurements, to metrics that we actually can't even see, right? The, the potential and the promise for actually, and, and actually the successes that have actually happened because we're trying to couch everything into a metric. Mm. And for me with metrics, I think, you know, evaluation, it looks very different for the particular situation or challenge that you're actually trying to deal with. I, I think, you know, it's actually Darren Walker from the Four Foundation said it best is, you know, I was at a, a conference and he was speaking in, you know, the logic model, we learned this in grad school, especially when you're, you know, it's a master's of science program. Um, it's basically a logical way to approach a situation. But how do you apply the logic model to apartheid? Right. How do you apply the logic model to situations of social injustice? It may not actually be possible. And so when you can let go of some of these things that someone told you you must have, you actually kind of get out of your own way and then you actually, you know, there, there are ways to actually expose more successes. So I'm all about metrics. I'm all about an uh, evaluation, whether it's quantitative or qualitative. I think it depends upon the, the situation and everything can't be quantified. And actually, it may not actually need to be quantified. So with regard to philanthropy, philanthropy can do whatever it wants to if it would just kind of get out of its own way. And it's, it's funny you mentioned Anand's book too. I uh, set in on an interview that he did, and um, he actually mentioned that his book is actually a tool for those working within philanthropy, right? As something to actually help you make the case for why we ought to do it this way, or let's try this, or let's try that. You know, I, I, I worry that we actually, you know, government always looks to us because we can, you know, we can move, we can, which is funny because sometimes we're not nimble. We can be more nimble than government. But we don't actually act like that. I've never seen a sector so powerful never use its power of just its voice, never mind the money, but just its voice on behalf of its grantees. And so I think there are things that have to, to be reconciled within. Again, you know, I can, another report that um, Center on Effective Philanthropy did years ago in which they spoke to CEOs of foundations, the people who are leading foundations. Now, there are, you know, depending on the foundation, whether it's a, especially if it's a family foundation, the donor is still involved, there may be, you know, a CEO may not always have the last say on something. So I, you know, I include that in my comments, but one of the things that this report, it was the future of foundations, then they looked at only CEOs they were talking to, no program staff, just the leadership of foundations. And one of the questions was, do you think philanthropy needs to change or do some things better. And they were like, yes. The next question was, do you think that philanthropy will change? And it was no, but you're the leader, right? So there, there is a psychological barrier of some kind, that, which is actually, to me, very frightening and very sad, right? So you have leadership of foundations who actually don't feel that philanthropy can change, but you're the leader, right? So those are the things that I think we continue to grapple with internally, With regard to the public sector, so first of all, and this is why I am interested, very interested, I've done some lectures, I'm very interested in doing more lectures and teaching because there's a generation of leadership, whether it's in philanthropy or not, who actually probably shouldn't be there, right? So all of these institutions are made up of people, right? So when we talk about the government, the government is made up of people, right? And so... People have to actually understand their responsibilities. You know, a colleague of, actually a grantee partner and colleague in Liberia was, you know, kind of frustrated with the leadership there. And he was saying that, you know, public service or or working in government used to be a public service position. It was never meant to get rich. It was actually never meant to acquire power. You were actually serving the public. And so when we get back to those electing those kinds of people, Al Gore said one time, the great thing, you know, as he was talking about climate change, he said the great thing about elected officials is they're recyclable. Right. You can get rid of them if they're not doing what they need to do. I hope so. But I exactly. (laughs) But what I see, see, you say you hope so. I have a friend who told me she has no hope whatsoever that we can make a change at the presidential level. And I was like, I thought to myself, people in this country, I say, I d- don't even have a vision for their democracy. How can you actually, how can you not have a vision for your democracy as democratic as it as it is? Many colleagues around the world would say this is not a democracy, which it technically isn't because we're a two-party system, but that's again, another conversation. But how can you not even have a vision for your own democracy? Who's going to change it if not you? So that's actually the thing that, Yeah. Worries me the most is that the people who actually, and and you know this thing about not voting, I'm not trying to hear that. You hold, you heard the poll tax story. I'm not trying to hear about you not voting. I'm not trying to hear about you being mad about having a choice between Trump and Hillary. You need to first learn how your country works because POTUS doesn't make law. The president of the United States doesn't make law. And you not voting means that you're also giving up your right to actually choose your elected official, who you know your representative, who actually does make law. So it's it's complicated, but it's really not. <laughs> I hope that all made sense. But no, yeah, philanthropy, yeah, can do what it wants to do, and yeah, government. It's up to us to elect the people who we think can do better. So,
1: just the um, before we get on to quick for questions. I want to talk to you a little bit about education and serendipity, but you've struggled and overcome your mental health challenges. How do you think we're going to come out of this crisis? And obviously a, there are many great organizations, NGOs dealing with mental health around the country and around the world. They must be feeling the burden of this probably more than most at the moment.
0: You know, one of the things that worries me still is that we don't actually even value mental health in this country, right? It's a struggle for people to get it included on the insurance. It's, it's a str- I just got through looking at a, a crop of proposals for the local women's foundation. And so many of them were around making sure that folks had access to mental health. I think it's, and this is going to be a problem for us because we don't value it as a country, right? It's still stigmatized in some communities it's, it's going to be a challenge. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish that we had some leadership at the top that actually spoke very powerful about the need for mental health. Yeah. I just, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think about, there's a, if you, you know anything about Ebola, you probably remember that. And this is when I think about, I, I can't, I do worry. I worry about like my mom. I worry about family members who have underlying issues. But sometimes I I do, I, I get angry when I think about some people who are navigating this like it's the end of their world. I mean, if you can stock up on anything, it's not the end of your world, right? If you can go and buy whatever you need, all you need, Take it from poor women who can't buy diapers because they couldn't get them this week. they have to get them next week. so if you can hoard anything I'm, I just i can't i don't I have very little patience for you there's um a group of young men in Liberia called the Cremation boys, and they were responsible for burning the bodies right we 're not burning bodies that 's what ebola that 's what Ebola required if you wanted to get a handle on the epidemic and these young boys they were they're young men have The most devastating mental health outcomes from alcoholism, drug abuse, stigma, like the country, with respect, the country, some of the people, the way they treat these young men who, and people, when you talk about Ebola, it was a game changer, burning of bodies. You're talking about destroying culture. So I I just, I find myself kind of angry.
1: (laughs) Understandably. If you've you've witnessed. With people here.
0: Because there are things that, you know, I I get angry when I think about states relaxing things early. You know, a, (laughs) a colleague of mine posted a meme, which really actually so sums up my anger. She's like, Our grandparents were asked to go to war. You're being asked to sit on your couch. It's just not the same. I'm sorry. It's just not the same. And so, if you could just, so anyway, so yeah, but the mental health piece, I think, worries me because we don't value it as a country. So
1: I'm I'm hoping that'll change. I'm hoping that may not come from too. political leadership, but I think it might come from enlightened organizations that start. And
0: individuals.
1: That, yeah, the combination.
0: We can all, yeah, say something.
1: Okay. I hope so. If you were handed the keys to the mayor's office of the White House, <laughs> What what changes would you make to the education system that might improve the future opportunities for youth that would be within your control?
0: You know, so the education, it's, it's such an interesting question because it's education itself. It's not the issue. It's quality education and it's access to quality education, right? It's the way education is funded. I mean, the key to the White House, I would actually, I'd work on the dismantle dismantling some of um that's one of the things about the united states that actually has always been so very confusing for me because we're actually not united on so many things right and so that's actually one of the problems with education is that education the way it's funded is actually a very uh, it's it can tend to be a state or a local issue Right, so there are minimums from the you know, the federal government provides, but that's why I don't know if it would have to be it it'd have to be a White House may I don't know about a, a mayor or a local, I don't know that's a really challenging question. So the piece of education is it's it's not so much education as the access it's the quality of it or it's the access to quality education. It's the funding of it.
1: That's a good answer.
0: I don't actually. No. I mean, I think one of the things is I know who does know. That's the one thing too, that I'm, I'm, I'm very clear on what I know and what I don't know. So I know the people I would probably engage, Uh including students and parents. So that's probably where I would begin with, with thinking about, yeah, who do I call in to help me with this problem? Cause there's already, there's already someone working on it. That's the one thing about most of the issues that we deal with in the world, you know, I was talking to a client and they were like, well, we have to see if someone's doing that. I can almost guarantee you there's somebody working on every problem you can think about. It's just one, whether or not they have the recognition or two, they actually have the resources to kind of put themselves on the map, if you will. So.
1: Okay. Where's serendipity impacted or affected your journey?
0: Yes. It's so funny, like. I mentioned I'm a woman of faith. And so it's so, it's been serendipity for me was, it's not that it's not work, but it's how easily things have come once I decided I'm going to do them. And I've, you know, set my mind to it. And so I think serendipity, they're, you know, going to graduate school, definitely the timing and everything was definitely serendipity.
1: Can I just share that? Yeah, sure. Because you mentioned the word fear and I, and the way you mm. just said is once you decided to do something and I, I always had this view that that if people that confront their fears are prepared to embrace failure and take actions are the ones where serendipity is, un- unlock serendipity. It seems to be, as you said, once you made the decision, that was you obviously confronting any fear that you yeah. might have had around an action.
0: Yes, it's actually... It's actually, it's fear, it's disappointment, and then it's actually, you know, maximizing opportunity. I don't know. I was sitting at my desk one day. I think I had just come back from a so it was CASA program, and I think I had just come back from a visit, actually. And I was, you know, I found myself, I was sitting at my desk, I was crying because kids are taking drugs to get up in the morning. You know, kids in foster care, they're taking drugs to go to sleep at night. And I was just like, this can't be what we're supposed to be doing with babies. And this was, you know, the whole conversation is how do you get on the front end of the, you know, of these, you know, rules and regulations and that actually govern the work that we do. And I decided like at the very last minute that I was going to go to grad school. It was time. I'd always known that I would go, but I applied to two schools, got accepted to one, and then I left. I applied to NYU and I applied to the new school. And I was accepted to the new school and I packed my stuff up. Friend of mine helped me drive home, you know, you know, New York. My mother was like, you need to go to Texas. I mean, you need to go to New York and find some housing because you cannot. It's New York. We actually lived in New York for a little while. and My dad was stationed in the Navy. So she was like, you can't just go and like find an apartment. You need to go now. So it just all happened so very easily. The job, you know, I applied. I, I went to New York to meet with my advisor, find an apartment. She showed, get yeah, young lady in the office, oh, this came across the fax machine. It's a job. That ended up being my first job. It was so very serendipitous. Every single thing, the way it all flayed into, you know, fell into place, rather, it was very serendipitous. When it was time for me to move from one foundation to the other, it was, again, serendipitous. And actually, by this time, I'd had my, you know, my crash and burn. <laughs> and so, and I'd also figured out my personality, right? I did this book that I always recommend to people, you know, Do What You Are. It was this really great book that had Myers Briggs, yada, yada, and it actually helped me figure some things out. But yeah, there have been so many serendipitous moments, the, you know, the decision, but they've also been very steeped in faith and actually trust. So I guess while I, you know, and, I, and fear is still something I deal with. I actually keep a, a thing on my phone that I downloaded about worry and fear because it's still, it's something, right? It's, it's still something that I deal with. But then I also try to very hard to listen, <laughs> find moments of quiet so that I can actually hear God talking. And so when it was time to start my company, I was like, get out of here. I was literally on a flight back from Liberia and this idea came to my mind and I was like, Shut up. And as soon as I landed, I started calling people and asking them questions. Like everyone that I knew worked with donors of wealth and yada yada. And, you know, to the name of my company, like everything was very serendipitous. And it's funny to reflect back on that. It it really is. Same thing with more impact. I just knew that the IRS was going to take forever (laughs) with approving the exempt organization
1: like that Anywho, yes cool okay uh, just uh, before i move on to the quick fire questions i i was listening to a great interview with uh, mo gaudet uh who wrote the book solve for happy i don't know if you've read it
0: Mm-mm. no
1: he was interviewed i'll say i'll put a link in the show notes elizabeth day interviewed him and she's got a podcast that's really good um called how to fail i think it is mm. and she did a COVID-19 special with the Mo Gaudet, And he was recommended oh, to wow. us, uh, his book by Anahita Mogadan as a previous guest. And he was ex-Google X and had a tragic uh, event in his life when his son died in his teenager. Mm. And he's written this book and it's his philosophy of happiness. And I would read it briefly. Um, I quite, sorry, read it quickly before, but never really spent enough time reflecting on it. But hearing him on the podcast... He was talking about his, one of his daily routines. In the morning, he has his, what he calls his, his I think he called it his me time. Mm. And part of that component is he spends half an hour with himself, just listening to his brain and what's going on in his head. And he said, you know, it's a combination. He said it's negative thoughts. But then he said, you give it about 15 minutes and then things really start to open up. So I tried it this morning. I just got my notebook out, did my meditation, sat there. I was like, "Yeah, it was almost me doing my de- at list." I'm going, "Okay, I need to do this, I need to do this." And then suddenly, it was like a an opening up of thoughts coming to my head that I hadn't thought about for years, and thoughts of putting things together. And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." And I think it is huh. something that we we don't have enough time for ourselves to actually just in silence let mm-hmm. just uh, f- our minds flow float and see what comes in that's actually true and it and it's really interesting so i think it's going to be my new daily my new daily habit so but we'll put the thank we'll, you for
0: sharing that
1: yeah we'll put the show we'll put this book in the show notes as well but anyway we'll go on um
0: please please quick fire, that quick fire, quick
1: fire questions what principles do you stand by
0: um authenticity and integrity
1: can't go wrong with those that was very easy yeah
0: no nope.
1: Uh, What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision?
0: Ooh, hard choices. Definitely starting my company and leaving my awesome, full-time, very well-paid job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it is, yeah, it's just, it's the best thing. And yeah, it's the best decision that I made. You know, the support that I got from my employer at the time, everything. It's just, it's, yeah.
1: There are no regrets. All right. Where'd you go to discover new ideas? You know what? I love to travel. Not anymore.
0: It'll be a while, but oh, oh, I can't wait. In fact, I can't, I I can't wait. I've got like millions of places in Scotland. I can't wait to go back. (laughs) Yeah, I, um, oh yeah, oh yeah. No one, but you know what? I don't actually, no, it's funny because that silence piece is something that I'm still working on. I have to force it now, but I would love for it to become a regimen. So, yeah, still figuring that out.
1: Uh, you, working in the area you do of philanthropy, you've seen some pretty big problems. What's one problem that is worth solving?
0: Uh, you know, to, to be honest, it's um, the one that is worth solving. You know, I thought first, I thought at first... You know what I call, which actually I don't call it that. I forgot it's America's original sin. But to be honest, that's just America's problem. It's just the way we treat each other. Really, it's a value piece. It's not something that can be funded. Just the way we treat each other. It really, it truly disturbs me the way we treat each other. So uh,
1: if you could return to one night, one day in history,
0: where, when, and to see who. Oh, now that one. One day in history, I you know honestly I think it's um that meeting that I had with the counselor about study abroad. I would go back, yeah, and make sure that I actually did it, yeah, because I I, I finally I made that journey, but again the fear piece I could have I could have been doing so many things much sooner. Yeah, and, and time is something you can't get back.
1: That's interesting. So you, that, I never thought about that question in relation to your own individual journey. We've often asked it, expecting people to say, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, uh, the end of the Second World War, but you focused in on your own personal journey. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, because I mean... Is I would, like, I would love, and actually Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at my, my mom's college graduation, wow. which is super cool. And if I could sit there and listen to that, that would be cool. But then I also think about, you know, what is my role? And so I, I think about how, how can I actually make me better? Mm-hmm. I guess that's what made me think about that. And you just kind of be the change you want to see. Uh-huh. That's what made me think about. Okay. Because I can only be responsible for my own stuff. Cool. Okay.
1: What's one question no one asks you that you wish they would?
0: I do not know because I'm an introvert by nature. I don't really want anybody asking me any questions. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't, that is, I just. Except your therapist. Actually, not even. Not even. <laughs> My therapist, bless her heart, before she retired, she got to the place where, like, I could just say one word. I feel stuck and she was like, oh. Or I could make a sound, and she understood, right? So it's not even—it's not even a question of my therapist. That one is—I know it's so funny because when people talk about staying home and like people are angry that they have to stay home, I'm like, that's an introvert's dream. What? I don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> Fewer meetings, but that is one I—I—I I, I, I don't. That's know. fun. Okay then. I don't know. <laughs> uh,
1: who's made you reevaluate yourself?
0: Oh, gosh, myself. Mm. When I reflect back on some of my behavior, like when I think about like spurts of anger, and I've always, I've, I've, one thing I figured out is anger is expensive. Like every time I've had a burst of anger, it's actually cost me. So I remember, yes, yes, broken pictures, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh, that's money. So that makes sense. Yes.
1: All right. The impossible question, what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate, go to study, that's a dream, has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's been told, forget it, that's impossible.
0: I would say get away from that person. And, you know, Susan Taylor used to be the Essence of, the editor of Essence magazine. I think it was a book she wrote and she, um, or an article, I can't remember, but one of the things I've never forgotten, she said that everyone does not need to be in the front row of your life. Some people need to be way up in the balcony, far away. You know, if someone is, if you are graduating from school and someone tells you something is impossible, you need to get away from them. I hate dream killers. I hate dream killers. I hate dream killers because this is why it's important to know yourself because it's usually coming from something that they're dealing with, has nothing to do with you. This is why it's so important to know yourself. No, I mean, what's impossible? Like, I mean, who's, who's to define what's impossible? It's so funny because I thought like, I'd love to fly. I'd love to fly a jet. Now, what are the chances that at my age I will become an Air Force pilot? That is likely impossible. But I just, I don't like dream killers. So I would just say I would tell them to move away from that person and actually... Good answer. Keep pursuing it. Yeah.
1: It's All right. Makes me mad. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs>
0: That's Another one.
1: I- <laughs> oh come on! You've got to have one.
0: Like- <laughs> Surely. No, really. Um, am I is, am I allowed to ask questions? <laughs> what well, your go-to karaoke song. It's so funny because we actually just we actually just did karaoke back in the fall. Um, you know I love and I've actually I think appreciate her more now that she's passed as Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Respect. It's
1: a good one. Can't go wrong with that. No. All right. What recent Netflix, Amazon series under lockdown have you seen that you would want people to watch?
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I'm a fan of Star Trek, but Star Trek Discovery. Oh, I've not seen that. Yes. So, you know, first of all, it's a black female lead, which is, you know, why I was anxious to watch it. But it's so awesome because it's like it's only taken like fifty years to get a black female lead. <laughs> She's not yet a captain still, but the show the show centers around her, and I love it. I love Discovery, so I love Star Trek Discovery. Very excited about that one. Please, can we get the third season? And actually, I love Espionage. Is there's a show? I think is is it BBC, but it's um actually called The Bodyguard, or it's no, it's called Bodyguard.
1: Oh, it's brilliant.
0: Yes, I yeah, love. That was yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I love Bodyguard. So that was that was a show that I just watched or series, hoping for another series of that too. But or yeah, season we call it. But yeah, I mean I could keep going with movies. So yeah,
1: <laughs> you mentioned one book earlier that was uh, influential, um, but what book would you like us to offer listeners that submit the best comments on Instagram or on the website?
0: You know the one about love by Bell Hooks. And it's so funny because I was, I was thinking about this question and it and, and actually kind of ties to the way we treat each other. And and Bell Hooks, it's literally about love. And, and one of the things that she says, which actually it's funny because I actually shared this at a um, philanthropy conference a few years ago. And one of the things she says is that love and abuse cannot coexist. And so, yeah, I, I think about love for sure. I think definitely you have to have something that is fun. And I think anything by J.D. (laughs) Robb. So I love J.D. Robb, which is Nora Roberts' alternate pen name. And it's it's a murder mystery. Okay. Series. So, yeah.
1: And final question.
0: Who should we interview next? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's, I got like... So I just forgot Christina's last name, but she's actually the co-founder of United We Dream. She actually is the co-author of the Dream Act. Oh my gosh, I just forgot Christina's last name. MacArthur Fellow, young woman. Brilliant. Just okay. brilliant. Just wise beyond her years. I thought about also, do you know Kennedy oday No. Kennedy oday runs Shining Hope for Communities based in one of the slums, uh, Kibera, in Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah. Kennedy O'Day-Day. His his journey is actually, it's just, yeah, it's quite brilliant. I think you should definitely, Abby Disney. And actually, I thought about Lema Bowie. I don't know if you all have had a chance to... Hmm? Lema Bowie is the 2011 Nobel laureate, shared the prize with... Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who's a former president of Liberia, and Tawqal Carmen, who is an activist from Yemen. To be honest, all three of those women, but wow. yeah, <laughs> have okay, well, just brilliant stories. We'll, so.
1: we'll, follow, we'll, follow up, we'll follow up with you. We'll <laughs> okay. See. Now that we're not uh, limited to doing it in Neuhaus or the ACAS studio, <laughs> we can use Zoom. It's a lot easier. It's opening up a little bit more. Uh, so before we go, I want to tell you one thing, but I'll come back to that. So I'll just finish off by thanking you and acknowledging you um, for your amazing work, the, your conviction to apply your passion to helping people through your wonderful network and your compassion. And as you said, your integrity, which really comes shines through completely. Oh. <laughs> But, all, but you. also your, your candor and openness <laughs> to be vulnerable and talk about things that a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable talking about. So I, I just uh, uh, thank you for that and really appreciate the time.
0: Thank you all so much.
1: If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina Michele and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.